Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen. Grab a seat. How are we doing this morning? Good. Hey, we're in our last week of a three-week series on spiritual disciplines. We do a spiritual discipline every January, and we define spiritual discipline as crossroads, as the way that we participate in the work that only God can accomplish, the work of changing our hearts. And, And simply put, disciplines are things that we weave into our daily life so that they change our desire and affections for the things that are harder to do, not easier to do, because we default to easy. And looking more like Jesus is worth it, but it's hard. And so disciplines are things that we engage in so that they make us fall more in love with the ways of Jesus. And we're in the third week of a discipline called rest. And we we know that disciplines are a marathon, not a sprint, kind of like last week's sermon. Um, It went (laughs) a little long. God did a lot of work last week, everybody, a lot of work. And I've heard so many good things about this sermon series on rest. Like literally last week, Somebody came up and said, Charlie, this sermon on rest has been so good. You should probably just give it a rest, <laughs> you know? Uh, somebody said, I hear, did I hear an amen? I, um, somebody actually said, this sermon's been so good on rest, I could rest more if you would stop talking. <laughs> I feel so encouraged in my job. Literally this morning backstage, somebody gave me a stopwatch, so... <laughs> I'm going to turn that bad boy on. Uh, I'm not going to look at it, but I have it. And I appreciate those things. No, but we're in a, a three-week series on rest, and this is the last week. And it's been really good. It's been really good because I think rest is something we do not do well in our culture. Rest is, is a foreign concept in an individualistic culture that says go. And so what we've been talking about, about rest, are the specific commands God gave and then why he gave them to us. And so today I want to talk about where we've been a little bit. I'd like to look at where we're going a little bit and give a big picture perspective on rest. So we started by looking at when God gave the command to rest, and it's right in Genesis 2. It's, it's the same story as the creation narrative. It says in Genesis 2 verse 3, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he ceased all work that he'd been doing in creation. So from the very beginning, from when God started creating, he starts to build in a rhythm of rest. And it came on the seventh day. And we're going to talk about the concept of seven a little bit today. But seven in the Old Testament scriptures stand for the number of completion or wholeness. And so God said, I'm going to create in six days. And the seventh day, I will weave into your life, into the fabric of creation, a day to stop. They stop and delight in what I've built for you is what God did. It's this beautiful concept, this construct that God says is essential to us. And that's why he uses two words to describe it in Genesis 2. He said, I'm going to give you a day of rest. And it's going to be two things. One, it's going to be blessed, which means that it's good for us. We define it as it's blessed because Sabbath literally gives life. That's what it means to be a blessing. That's what God said is blessed in the creation narrative with the fish and the animals and then us. He said, you are blessed, go and multiply, spring life forward. And he said, the Sabbath is also blessed because it gives you life. And in our first week, we talked about what that looks like and what that means. And it looks like a couple different things. One, Sabbath is a perpetual reminder that God doesn't love me for what I produce for him because I take a day off. Sabbath is a reminder of grace. 
And in their culture, and I'd argue in ours, most people value me by what I can produce for them. Schools and jobs and even kids in some respect. We value, we are valued by what we produce. Sabbath says God loves us even if we take a day and don't do anything. It reminds us of how God loves you. It reminds us of the beauty of grace in a culture that kicks against it, that's defined by meritocracy. I think, too, what Sabbath does, why it's blessed is not only that it reminds us of grace in a world that isn't very gracious, but I think that literally what Sabbath does, it reminds us that if we stop working, God keeps working. It reminds you that the world spins on without you, and that's a good thing because the lie and the self-deception of my control grows each day, and I need to remember that I control very little in relationship to what God controls. So in one sense, it is a reminder of grace, and in another, it's just a, a rhythm of trust. That trust that God will take care of me when I'm not taking care of me, when I'm not doing anything. It's a beautiful reminder. And so God said Sabbath is this weekly rhythm of rest is blessed. And then last week we said he also calls it holy, which means he absolutely sets it apart for something. It's an intentional pursuit, not just one that happens by default. He said, it's going to be a sacred, special time of your week that you're going to set aside and be intentional about because if you're not, it won't happen. and It'll show other people that I'm holy too. And so we talked about four things that are present in Sabbath rest. And one is stopping, two is resting, and rest is not the same thing as stopping. It's life-giving rhythms of stopping. And three is delight is always included in Sabbath. What do you delight in? How do we delight? How do we find delight in the things that we do as they roll up into joy in God? And then four is just worship. That's the point and the joy of it all. And so Sabbath is in every single way blessed. And it's also holy. It's intentional. It's set apart. It's a different day than the other days. So it's kind of like, um, in the first century world, and we're about to go there pretty quickly, they, they started worshiping the day over the God that made the day, you know? So this is my Karate Kid analogy. Have you guys ever seen it? If you haven't, nod your head yes and make me feel not old. Yes, good, thank you. Um, so if you've seen it, you know, the guy says, hey, like, wax my car, the wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. And he didn't get the point of it. He never understood what the point of this cleaning was. And then he gets into a fight and he realizes that his sensei had been asking him to do something that ultimately wasn't about a clean car, even though clean cars are good and holy. Ultimately, that action was to provide a shadow of what he would need later on as he got into matches. The, the point here is when we talk about the rhythm of Sabbath, it is good for you. It's how God encouraged us to flourish in his world. It is set apart to remind us that God is good. All those things are true. But ultimately, the habit of Sabbath was always intended to point to something bigger and better and tell a different story. And the problem is, the Jews in the first century world miss it. And, and I think that's not just their problem, it's ours. Because I think we constantly worship the things that are supposed to point to what's worthy of worship and deepen our worship. We constantly put things on pedestals that don't belong there. It's Romans 1 that we're going to worship the creation over the creator. And we're going to get into it a little deeper. But in the first century world, this was at the forefront of what they worshipped. The practice of Sabbath, not what Sabbath pointed to. But we do it all the time. We might not do it with Sabbath, but... We worship the things that are supposed to deepen our worship all the time. I lived in Chicago for seven years, and I think the church is hugely culpable of this. 
I worked in Chicago for a while, did the school thing there a couple different times, and worked with a church up there. Very big church, very famous pastor, and it got revealed in the last year or so, there's some very unhealthy things that happened, and people just couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it because you couldn't look past the man because we started worshiping a man instead of the God that he was supposed to point us to. And there's grace for him like there is for all of us, by the way. But we do this all the time with jobs and with spouses and with kids and with versions of the Bible. We use the things that are supposed to deepen our worship and point to what's worthy of our worship and instead we worship it. And that's what we find in the text today is we miss the forest through the trees. We don't see the big picture And today I want to see the big picture of the Sabbath because it's really beautiful what it points towards. That God, at the very beginning, wove this in so that we would see that. Today's about what that that is. We have two goals at Crossroads every Sunday morning. If you've come here um, anytime before, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this every week. I'm going to say it again because it's good for you. But one is we want to know God. And we know God by opening the scriptures. We know God by reading his word that is living and active and paints the picture of a God who hasn't given up on us but rushes after us because he loves us so much. We worship that God. But true and full knowledge doesn't just end in knowing answers to questions. It always, always, always lends itself towards increased influence in our life. And so our first goal is to know God and our second goal this morning is to experience God's influence as it grows because we know God. And what that takes from us is a concerted effort. It means you're not here by chance and you're just not lazy listening, but we are engaging with the spirit this morning that's active, asking the question, what does God want to show me? How is he shaping me? How am I leaving the day more in love with, looking more like Jesus? And in a critical culture, we need to be reminded that we're in this together this morning. So we're going to take a minute and just set our hearts right and We're going to pray, and I'll ask if you're comfortable. You can say a silent prayer for you, and then for me, that I do a good job ignoring this clock up here. Okay, everybody? So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful for Sabbath, that we can stop in a really busy culture, that we can stop running after things for a couple hours on a Sunday morning and realign ourselves with your good. I pray this morning as we talk about Sabbath, Holy Spirit, I pray that you deepen our affection for Jesus as we talk about the rhythm that you established in our world. And ask if you're comfortable to take a couple seconds and silently say a prayer that the Holy Spirit might be active today, might show you things, reveal some things, and shape your soul to look more like Jesus this morning. I ask that you pray for me and do a good job clearly articulating God's plan and rhythm of Sabbath and what it pointed to. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. We're in it together. If you've got a Bible, we're going to spend most of our time today in Mark chapter 2. It's going to be a centering text for us. So today's a little different than the last couple weeks. The last couple weeks, we've spent time in a couple commandments in the Old Testament and asked the question, why is Sabbath good for us? What does it do for you? Why did God say it's blessed and holy? Today's a little different. 
Today we're going to take a systematic look at Sabbath, which means we back way up and look at kind of what the entire Bible says about Sabbath and what it reveals about why it's ultimately good, not just good in the moment or the day or the week. We're going to ask the question, what does all the scripture say about this concept that God created? And so we're going to be in Mark 2. But because we're going to get a whole systematic look at a theme, we're also going to bounce around quite a few places to kind of fill in some gaps for us. So keep your thumb in Mark chapter 2, or your phone turned on to there, and we'll go other places, and I'll throw them on the screen, and you can go there if you want to. But Mark chapter 2, at the very end of the chapter, in verse 23, we find the story of Jesus and his disciples on the Sabbath. And I just want to read it, and then we'll break it down a little bit. In verse 23, Jesus was going through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to pick some heads of wheat as they made their way. So the Pharisees said to them, look, why are you doing, why are they doing what's against the law on the Sabbath? Okay, we've hit this before a couple times, but in the first century world, out of all the commandments, the commandment to keep the Sabbath was the signpost for the rest of them, all 613. It was a big deal. The way they kept the Sabbath was very serious. We even see it in the law that they were given in Exodus 31. It says, you're going to keep the Sabbath all the time. And it says there's a punishment for not keeping the Sabbath that's holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. These are high stakes here. It's not saying that if you break the Sabbath, you're going to get a talking to, you know? It says if you break the Sabbath, it is one of the most serious offenses, And so they're walking amongst a field and they're hungry and they want to pick some grain and they do it and they break Sabbath law. And let me tell you something, um, they knew what they were doing. Jesus was a rabbi. He grew up in the system. He knew exactly what was permissible on Sabbath. And he told his disciples to pick the grain anyway. Jesus is seeking out or at least not shying away from conflict here, which I think is really interesting because he wants to teach the Pharisees a lesson and they respond and they say, can you believe these men did work on the Sabbath? And if you're me, you're looking at this saying, what's the big deal? They just picked some grain as they were walking, but they took Sabbath way more seriously. And we have a tendency to judge instead of relate sometimes when we read the scriptures, sometimes when we live life. And so we look at this and we say, I can't believe those Pharisees. They are so legalistic and they're so judgmental. They even see Jesus and he's right there. Hindsight's 2020, you know that? These guys really cared about the Sabbath because it's how they cared for their Lord. And you got to get that. There were 39 different categories of things that you couldn't do on Sabbath because God said, don't work on the Sabbath. And you know what's a word that doesn't have a lot of definition? Work. What does work mean for you? I brought up my buddy Ian a couple weeks ago. If I said, what does it mean not to work? He'd say an eight-hour day. So I think there's a difference in what work is for you and me. And so they went to the law and they said, God said, don't work on the Sabbath. We need to put some regulations around this because if we don't, we're going to accidentally break it. And we love God so much, we don't want to come close to accidentally breaking it. And they did what the rabbis called building a fence around the law. They had 39 different categories with subcategories that were in the hundreds of things you couldn't do on the Sabbath. For example, you couldn't do acts of work on the Sabbath. You couldn't do things that resembled prohibited acts of work or be confused with those acts of work on the Sabbath. You couldn't do habits that linked to the acts of work on the Sabbath or led to other people performing the prohibited act on the Sabbath. Couple, couple examples. One, ripping a piece of paper was forbidden on the Sabbath. Because it resembled cutting to a shape, and you'd be creating a shape at that point. You couldn't create, right? 
uh, agreeing to buy something was prohibited because most agreements are confirmed in writing. Climbing a tree, this one of my favorites, was prohibited because it may lead to breaking twigs or tearing leaves, which could be construed as reaping or separating part of the growing plant from its source. There are things you couldn't do. They were actually reaping. They were separating the wheat from the chaff to eat. That was against the law on the Sabbath because you were doing work. You were separating living things from not living things at that point. There were certain things you couldn't even touch on the Sabbath, like a hammer or a nail, because it would then cause you to maybe break a law down the road. They were incredibly serious about Sabbath. And I want to get their heart for it, because if we don't, then we fall into this trap of thinking that we're not the same. And that's sad. Because I think we're more like them than we realize, and it comes from a good place, you know? Last week or two weeks ago, I got on all my news feeds and there's 17 different articles on that we just hit our 100 year anniversary of prohibition in um, America. I don't know why all the curated sources th- thought that I need to hear that, but that's another sermon. Um, there are all these curated sources on it's the 100 year anniversary of prohibition. <laughs> and I, I got to thinking about it and reading why that happened. It started from a good place. The Bible doesn't say never drink. It says don't have 10 drinks because then you'll listen to the drinking instead of the spirit of God that's in you. And there's some stipulations on what that might look like, but they came together 100 years ago and said, you know what, we want our families to be healthier, and we think drinking leads towards not making it healthier. And they said, so, even though the Bible doesn't outright say don't ever drink, if we don't drink, we don't run into any problem of being drunk. So they said, let's ban it. And it came from a really beautiful place of health for families and friends and country and people. I grew up in a youth group culture in the late 90s, early 2000s. I only went a couple times to the youth group. It was, you know, the height of the boy band, Britney era. You know what I'm talking about. Boys to Men and uh, Backstreet Boys were my favorites, everybody. That's right. We can talk about it later. But I grew up in that era, and youth group was often about um, the value of, and it's a good value, of, of abstinence in the late 90s. There's been some documentaries made about it, and that's a beautiful thing that God wants and talks about and says it's healthy for you and your relationship to wait on sex until marriage. But then it spurred this whole conflict of, well, what does that look like? What can you wear and not wear? What's appropriate? How tight do things need to be? Can you wear a one-piece or a two-piece? I don't know, and I don't want to have that conversation kind of sort of thing, you know? It started in beautiful places that ended in fences around laws because they cared about the God that made the law in the first place. They missed the forest through the trees. And so they're, they're walking and they're eating things. And Jesus says to them as they're walking and they're eating, when they said, how could you break the Sabbath in verse 25? He said, have you never read what David did when he was in need and his companions were hungry? It's a verse from the Old Testament. He said, how he entered the house of God when Abiathar was their high priest and he ate sacred bread, which is against the law for any but the priests to eat. And he also gave it to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. He went back to a story they knew and knew well and picked the most beloved figure in all of Israel's past, in all of the Jewish history. And he said, you remember when this guy broke it and you're fine with it? Like, what's the difference now? He's saying, you don't get the intent behind the Sabbath. You just see the command, don't work as you've defined it. You've missed it over time. And so kind of what I want to do is walk through that idea that Sabbath was made for people, not people for Sabbath, because Sabbath always pointed to something. Keep your finger there, but the most detailed version of Sabbath we have is found in Leviticus chapter 25. It's a whole chapter to Sabbath, this idea of resting. 
And so God said in creation, and he said in the Ten Commandments, you're going to take one day a week, the seventh day, the day that means wholeness or completion, and you're going to rest. You're not going to do any work. But, but from there, he said that one day a week painted a picture of, of, of more than just that one day a week. And so in Leviticus chapter 25, he says this, the Lord spoke to Moses at Sinai. Tell the Israelites, when you enter the land that I'm going to give you, the land must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. Not just one day a week, six years you may sow in your field, and six years you'll prune your vineyard and gather the produce. But in the seventh year, the land must have Sabbath of complete rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You must not sow in your field or prune in your vineyard. You must not gather in the aftergrowth of your harvest, and you must not pick the grapes of your unpruned vines. The land must have a year of complete rest. That word there um, for rest in Hebrew is shmita, and they're using that now to talk about this idea of, of complete resting, a release. So the one day a week pointed to the one year out of every seven where they let everything rest or be released from its duties. And then the rest of chapter 25, we're not going to read it all. You can. It's really beautiful. It, it talks about not just a picture of the one day a week or the one year out of the seven, but both those things point to, anticipate, and hope forward to one year every 50, the one year after the seven, seven year period. So if you take seven and multiply it by the seven years on the 50th year, God wove into their calendar something called the year of Jubilee. In that chapter alone, that word Jubilee is seen 14 times. And he said, let me tell you about what rest looks like. So sure, it's, it's one day a week, but that one day a week leads to a more serious rest one, every, one year every seven years. And then every 50 years, after seven sevens, every 50 years, let me tell you what rest looks like. And they go through the text there, and it says literally that if you have land that wasn't yours, you're going to let people buy it back or give it back because it's their family's land. And in an agrarian society, that was value. It says that if somebody holds a debt against you, you're just going to release them from their debt. If you own slaves, you release the slaves. If you own animals that aren't yours, you release the animals that aren't yours. It says literally, if you buy any land, the value or price of that land is about when the next jubilee is or the last one was. Because when we get there, we release people from any and all indebtedness they might have. He makes this case that Sabbath is really all about releasing from the indebtedness of the world around us. Whether it be physical or whether it be monetarily or whether it be literally like, I own you. It says Sabbath is the releasing of the restlessness of the world. When God presses a hard reset and no man owns more than another, no man owns another man, and we then can have complete rest from all the things that are expected or debted of us. It's a beautiful picture of release. That word release is seen time and time again when it talks about Sabbath in Leviticus 25. Just one by one, he knocks through it. And all the college kids with college debt said, can we bring that back next year, you know? Can we let it all go? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that would do to our country, to the world, if one year out of every 50, we just said, hey, all debts are wiped clean. You don't owe me anything anymore. That'd be am amazing and scary, I think, at the same time, you know? I'd buy seven houses that year. <laughs> Seven's the perfect number. There it is. Um, so so he, he weaves into the rhythm of Israel this idea of rest that ultimately lends itself towards releasing. There was a phrase 
Actually, you can go to a verse in Isaiah 2. I'll put it on the screen. It's a verse in Isaiah 2 that the rabbis would talk about, Israel would talk about as they looked forward to the rest of God, as they looked forward to what it looked like when they were finally delivered. And in Isaiah 2, he talks about it and he says, um, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up the sword against other nations and, they re- and we will no longer train for war. And what that means is that there will be a time when, when we don't have to worry about being taken captive or owing somebody something. There'll be a time when we can actually rest because Israel is constantly fighting, constantly being taken over, constantly owing things to other kings around them because they were afraid they were going to get taken over and enslaved again. Israel is constantly needing release from the debts they owed to themselves and the people around them. And so this idea of release was paramount to who they were. It's actually a couple of uh, rabbis, more modern rabbis that talk about like what rabbis argued about way back in the day. And we found some texts about it. And so there's some rhythms to that rest. So coming out of Isaiah 2.4, there's an argument that goes on where, where one rabbi would say that, you know what? No, I'll just read it to you. A man should not go out with a sword, bow, shield, club, or spear. Because he's saying on the Sabbath... If you carry those things with you, they're reminders of the restlessness of a world that's supposed to be restful in the first place. Because in a perfect world that's in harmony, you probably don't need a bow, and you probably don't need a spear, and you probably don't need protection. It's a beautiful concept, you know? I take a trip once a year where I go with a buddy of mine, and we find places with no cell phone reception, and we camp, and we hike, and we swim. It's one of my favorite things. And it's the closest thing to rest I have. It'd only be made better if my wife went with me. Um, I... I go there and the first couple years, I took my laptop with me, you know, so I could do some work like in downtime. And I never really did any work, but I just wanted that crutch of taking my laptop with me just, just in case, you know, just in case I had to do something. And this last year was the first time I didn't take it with me at all. And even if I didn't use it, just the fact that I had it reminded me of the restlessness of the world that I live in, that I can't fully get away and delight in God. So the rabbis would say, even carrying those things with you is an affront to the purpose of what Sabbath reminds us about. That God said that there will be ultimate rest in the world. So so fundamentally, when you peel back the layers of Sabbath, it's about way more than one day. It's, It's about more than one year out of seven. It's even about more than that one year of jubilee out of every 50 years that God says, this will be delight for you. Sabbath rest is about restored justice in a broken world. It's about them remembering that there will be a time when God puts the pieces back together, when they won't owe, and they won't fight, and they won't defend. Sabbath is really about the picture of what God created in Genesis 1. And so when he says you will rest, he means because it's supposed to point towards a day when you don't have to anymore. That's beautiful. So Jesus says to these Pharisees, you don't get it. You're worshiping the thing and you've missed the point of the thing You've missed why this was here in the first place. It wasn't supposed to make you a slave to it. It was supposed to be so that you might be released from the things you feel enslaved to. And he goes on in the last verse of Mark 2 to go back to the text in Mark. And he says, for this reason, this is profound. For this reason, the son of man is Lord even on the Sabbath. Son of man is a name that he referred to himself with when he talked about his deity. It's used in talking about the lineage of David. He's saying, for this reason, 
the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. It's a huge phrase. The Sabbath was what distinguished them from everybody else. It was the beacon of all of their laws, which showed them God loved them more. And he says, for this reason, the Lord, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And if you want to understand what that means, you have to understand the nature and work of why Jesus came in the first place. So we're going to go somewhere else to unpack this. In Luke 4, we've been here a few times lately. Such a great passage. In Luke 4, Jesus is literally just starting his ministry. This is kind of his coming out party, if you will. And, and he gathers on, uh, in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And this is verse 16. It says, he's, he went to the synagogue in the hometown he was brought up in on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of Isaiah was given to him, and he read a bit of it. And you got to understand, when they met on, on the Sabbath in the synagogue, they had a rhythm. They would start by singing the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love your God with everything you got, <laughs> you know? And then somebody would stand up and read from the law, and then somebody would stand up and read from the prophets. Jesus stands up, and they just give him Isaiah. They don't highlight a text to read. They don't say, read this clip. They just give him Isaiah, and it says, He turns, it's chapter 61 in Isaiah, and he read this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the regaining of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And all the Jewish people thought Sabbath. All the Jewish people thought this is the year of Jubilee. And when Jesus reads that, by the way, just a fun little nugget. There's two phrases uh, that kind of go towards this idea of release, where we see that word there, release the captives and set free those who are oppressed, comes from two different verses. Except for that second underlined phrase, set free those who are oppressed, all of that's Isaiah 61. The second one is from Isaiah 58. And, and if you're a student of the Bible and most of the Old Testament, and most of them were, you probably had the thing memorized. These are popular texts. And so when Jesus sneaks in a phrase from another verse in the middle of this verse, they kind of got it. They understood what was going on. It would be like if somebody came up here and said, let's quote the Lord's prayer and said, our father who art in heaven, who sent his only begotten son, hallowed be your name. You would say, hold on a second. I see what you did there, you know? And Isaiah 58, ironically enough, is all about Israel's worship and what true Sabbath is supposed to be about in the first place. So they all went there and said, oh my goodness. He's talking about Sabbath, about worship, about what it looks like. And he said, this will be the year of the Lord. It's really beautiful. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to release. Same language we see in Leviticus 25. He's actually reading from the scrolls in the Septuagint, which is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so the word there that means released literally in the Greek has a really broad semantic range, which means that we have several words we use to use the same word that they use in the Greek. So when we say release, we mean like let go of. You can let go of land, you can let go of slaves, you can release from all these different things. But we see it a couple different places in the New Testament. So let's go one more place. In Mark chapter 2, at the very top, I'll summarize this story. It's a beautiful story of, of a friend, uh, four friends of this one man who couldn't walk. 
And if you know the Bible, you might have heard this story before. Jesus is healing, so people showed up, and they couldn't get their friend in front of Jesus to be healed. And these guys were really, really great friends. And so they said, let's climb on the top of the house, let's drill down a little bit, and let's drop you from the top to the bottom. You can't walk anyway. What harm's going to happen? You know? A little bit of my interpretation there. <laughs> I'm a dark humor guy. <laughs> And so, so Jesus sees this. He sees their faith of, of them saying, we're going to do whatever we can, whatever we can to absolutely get you in front of Jesus because we know he's good. And Jesus says to him in verse five, son, I've seen your faith. Son, your sins are forgiven. You know what that word forgiven is in the Greek? Released. In the Greek, in the New Testament, if you forgave somebody, you just said, I'm releasing you from your sins. Just like I'm releasing you from land, I'm releasing you from your loans, and I'm releasing you from the indebtedness that you have in your world. That's why Paul uses the same language in Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. But he goes on to say, but now that you have been set free from sin. See, here's what I think Jesus is saying in this text. He's saying that the Sabbath all along, all along pointed to what he was supposed to do. So in Luke chapter 4, Jesus reads this text. And it's not bad enough that he read it and subbed in his own language there. He reads the text, and then he sits down and says, what you heard today now is coming true right here, essentially. Profound statement. He said, this text is true right here, in and through me. He said, in the text says, everyone else there stood in amazement. And they looked around and said, isn't this Joseph's kid? That's a pretty big claim to make. I know Joseph, you know? This idea that how can he claim those things? And it goes into what Jesus was supposed to do all along. When he said in Matthew 5, I haven't come to get rid of or abolish the law or prophets. I've come to fulfill them. This is what he means. You didn't see it back then, but the reason why you waxed on and off was because it always pointed to the day when this would come true. The Sabbath is always going to point to my releasing you, not just of land and not just of debt, but of your indebtedness to sin. Jesus was the Lord of the Sabbath because it always pointed back to his mission and his work and the freedom he would give from the sins of the people, the brokenness of the world. He brings rest. That's why in Colossians 2, it says, don't let anyone judge you with respect to food or drink or in matter of a feast, new moon, or Sabbath days. These are only a shadow of things to come. But the reality is Christ. I, let me tell you how my mornings go a little bit. Um, I'm going to give you this lamp analogy I heard that I liked. So I wake up in the morning and the kid starts crying and um, I'm usually the one that goes and gets her. And, and I walk in the room and I turn the sound machine off and I say, hey kiddo, good morning, did you sleep well? She can't talk back yet. Uh, she's just crying and, and, I, and I slowly open the window and, and like any light from my neighbor's light outside like, you know, caresses her little face. And she sleeps in this sleep sack and I take her out of the sleep sack and I say, can I get, can I get, a, can I get a good morning hug? And she always, always, always says no and pushes me back, right? It's really so affirming to start your day with rejection from the thing that depends on you for life. <laughs> and so she says, no. She can't say many words. She can say no to hugs from her dad. But what she can do is use letters to tell you kind of what she's thinking about. And so we start every morning with a pouch. And so she looks at me, she says, no. And she goes, pow, pow, pow. And I said, do you want a pouch? She goes, yes, right? And we go and we get a pouch and we sit on our couch. 
I open the windows. It's still dark outside mostly. And we sit on the couch with this lamp that overhangs. And I turn on the lamp and we just sit there for two and a half minutes while she's chugging this thing like it's a frat party and she's 22. She, um, <laughs> she, she's peaceful, you know? She's just utterly peaceful. And what's fun and why I bring that up is because as the morning progresses and the sun rises, my house has a good bit of natural light in my kitchen, in my living room. And so as the sun rises, you, you really don't need the lamp anymore. My wife likes it on, but you really don't need the lamp anymore. But it served a purpose for when you needed it. The same way Jesus says this about the Sabbath. You didn't realize it when you turned it on, but it always, always was foreshadowing the light that was to come. So when you do Sabbath, when you think of Sabbath, when you have these strict regulations around Sabbath, when you talk about the ultimate Sabbath that is the year of Jubilee, the releasing of all indebtedness of a world, of a world that is restless, that's supposed to be restful, when you think of that, I'm the one that made it full. And so he's going to say all throughout the New Testament, so you can keep Sabbath if you want to. You can keep the lamp on, even though you might not need it as much anymore because it's found fulfillment in me. And I argue that it's good to do that. I think rhythms of Sabbath are how God created the world to function and us to flourish. We've talked about that at length. But he gives us grace in how we do it and when we do it and what it looks like and what day of the week it might fall on for us. But as I came to fulfill this, it always was this way back in Genesis 1. God was looking forward and saying this idea of rest or of release isn't just of your weekly, you need to unplug and the stress that comes from working whatever job you had. It was always finding its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus releasing us from the pain of the sin that we bring in this world. And so in Mark chapter two, it rolls now into Mark chapter three in the next verse. And there's a story all about Sabbath and all about the effects of the restlessness of the world. I'll just read it to you. Jesus entered the synagogue again, which I love because what that means is that he had left. He had left and he comes back. And I think he comes back because he's got a point that he wants to make. It means that he went to the synagogue, did his duties, and he was walking out. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to do something else. He said, there's a man there at a withered hand. They, the Pharisees, watched Jesus closely to see if he would heal them on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him. So he said to the man with the withered hand, stand up among all these people. Then the man stood up. Um, he said, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or evil to save a life or destroy it? But they were silent because they knew the answer. After looking around at them in anger, grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. So the Pharisees went out immediately and began plotting with the Herodians as to how they could assassinate him. They couldn't see the forest, the trees, or the ultimate purpose that Sabbath functioned as, which was redemption and release not just from your sin, but the effects of sin in our world. One commentator said, human need is higher than religious ritual. So they didn't get here. So really, when we talk about Sabbath, it is the story of release and restored justice made possible through Jesus. Every time. Each and every Sunday or Monday or Tuesday that you Sabbath, each and every time they did in the Old Testament, whether they knew it or not, every seven years, every 50 years, it was a story they were telling when they were stopping that Jesus ultimately brings rest here and now and will one day. That he releases us from the burdensomeness of a restless world, but also one day will release the world from the burdensomeness of the sin that, 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 that brings this place into darkness. He says, I am the releaser, I am the setter free of the oppressed. Martin Luther has a quote I love. He said, God writes the gospel not in the Bible alone, but also in the trees and the flowers and the clouds and the stars. <laughs> the idea 
that we can see God working all over the place if we open our eyes to it. The Pharisees couldn't. Jesus even heals this man's hand and instead of looking at the redemption that he brought, they say, let's kill him. It's tough when we worship things over what we're supposed to worship, which is God. And so when Jesus goes about saying, delight in me, when the Bible talks about Sabbath, it's asking us to stop and tell the story of restored justice through and in Jesus. For my life and for our world and for my family and for this church and for Flower Mound and for all the mounds out there in the world, it's saying that we're telling a bigger story with my life when I stop. And sure, it's about you and it's about you resting and it's about you finding grace again. It's about you actually pressing into God's good design as you realize you're not in control. And it's about setting our time aside because it's how God created the world. But ultimately, all those things point to and find fulfillment through Jesus. I bet coming into the day, if I said, hey, Sabbath always pointed to something and it made you guess, you should have said Jesus. It's church, everybody, but it's beautiful how God did it. And he said, before people even messed up, I wove in this narrative so that you could see the greatness and the goodness of what Christ did for us. You might rest and know that we see glimpses of it now and he fulfills it in the long term going forward. It's our hope. So as Sabbath progressed, um, this is a really interesting concept in the Old Testament and, and in the first century church of, of the number eight. So we've talked about seven a lot, being wholeness and completion. But the number eight also stood for um, kind of newness of life because seven is the last day of the week. Eight is the first day of the next week. And even in the Old Testament, we see rhythms where eight meant new life amongst old, not restful life. So kids in the Jewish world were circumcised on the eighth day dedicated to God, right? No, it says in, in 1 Peter 3, it says, in the ark, a few, that is eight souls, were delivered through water. So the Jewish expression of new life out of old life that needs to be made new often found itself in this theology of eight. And so they would say in the Old Testament, that what eight represents is the newness of life of God creating in the darkness of the old that needs to be redeemed and restored or released from the pain of sin. So if you fast forward that to the Jesus narrative, I find it fascinating that Jesus was captured and crucified and then he rested on the seventh day in the tomb and he rose again on the eighth day, the day of new creation and new work and new promise and new hope. In fact, in the New Testament, every time we see Jesus appearing to somebody in a resurrected form and it mentions the day, it's always on the eighth day or the first day of the week, the new week. In, in the first century world, literally what they would do is they used um, baptism to remind them of the eighth day. And the finishing line to that quote in Peter is, which saves you, you're delivered through water. And this prefigured baptism, which now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the first churches that we have on record always baptized through this octagonal kind of tube of water. And, and they made it octagonal, eight sides, because it represented the first day of the new week or the idea of eights of God redeeming and restoring and recreating. It's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So early on in the first century church, we asked the question, how did we get from Sabbath on Friday night to Saturday night in the Jewish world to Sunday morning here? Because it's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. It's the eighth day of the week. It's the first day of the new creation. So they started gathering together on Sundays to remind themselves of God still doing something after he released us from who we were. 
It says in Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week when they gathered together to break bread, one church father says, you have a festive day every eighth day. And Abraham Herschel, who's a rabbi, says, Sabbath is an eternity-uttering day. And so we gather on Sundays now. We gather on Sundays to remind ourselves that God wasn't done, to remind ourselves that Jesus rested and then released us from the curse of sin that we fall under. We Sabbath because when we Sabbath, we tell the story of Jesus, that he's not done, that he's recreating, and that the rest that we see now is only a taste of the rest that is to come. It's our hope. It's why we praise the name of God. It's why we say Sabbath is good because we know that this isn't the end of the story. It's just those moments, these glimpses that we get when one day we will be with God again and the restlessness of the world is redeemed as it is released from its hold on the place that we live. It's the story of God making the world right again. That's what Sabbath is all about. So every time, every time we Sabbath, hopefully we're telling the gospel story. When people ask me, why do you take time off? I don't yet. Like I said before, I'm trying to lean into this. People ask me, why do you Sabbath? I can say, because I'm telling the story of God. It does some really cool things for me, but ultimately it points towards a God who released me from the chaos of the world and restored justice to our world. And he's working on that in and through his people. It's a shadow of things to come. And so as we wrap up and as we sing another song, and as we think about what Sabbath means and the rhythm of our lives as we talk about disciplines, I think it's really important that we never lose picture of the big picture, which is that Jesus came and ultimately fulfilled what should be a world full of rest and delight and a God who created and said, it is good. Let me pray. God, I'm so thankful for how you wove in just the rhythm of rest for us and then ultimately tell the story of Jesus. (laughs) I pray that we're never people that miss that. I pray that we're never people that too often focus on the thing and not the thing that it's pointing towards. I pray that we can every time we rest get the bigger picture because what that does is it deepens our joy for the Lord, for what Jesus did for those days, for those moments, for those restful periods. It increases our delight, which is a part of Sabbath in the first place. So as we Sabbath, whether it be on Friday nights or all day Saturdays or Sunday mornings when we gather here, as we Sabbath, may we press in to the story of Jesus. May we delight in what he did for us. And may we be a people that continue to tell that story to the world around us desperately need to be released from the sin that so easily entangles so that we might all delight in Jesus together. I pray these things in his name. Amen.